Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news in Hoosier Law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Olivia Covington, Indiana Lawyer Editor and your host for this week. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode will be a little bit different than normal. Daniel Carson, Alexa Schrake, and I will start off with our headlines like usual, but for our extended interview, we're going to borrow from another podcast from the IBJ Media family. You may be familiar with Off the Record with the Indiana 250, a podcast hosted by IBJ Media publisher Nate Feltman, who interviews honorees on our 2023 list of the most influential business people in Indiana. Earlier this month, Nate interviewed Notre Dame Law School Dean G. Marcus Cole, and we thought our listeners would like to hear that one too. So instead of our regular extended interview, we'll have that conversation for you after our headlines. Today is Wednesday, January 24th, 2024, and these are your headlines. Let's start with the Indiana Supreme Court. Alexa, you were in the House chamber when Indiana Chief Justice Loretta Rush gave her 2024 State of the Judiciary Address. So why don't you tell us what she had to say? Rush delivered her 10th State of the Judiciary Address to lawmakers and the governor during the first week of the legislative session. This year's theme was Indiana Court's Return on Investment, and she highlighted ways legislative funding has fueled the work of the judicial branch. Her address focused on behavioral health needs, family recovery courts, and court technology. She specifically highlighted work being done in Floyd, Vigo, and Marion counties. In Floyd County, local leaders, including a local judge, created their own mental health summit after being inspired by the 2022 statewide mental health summit. In Vigo County, Rush spotlighted the work of the local family recovery court in supporting a man who was ultimately able to obtain his GED and driver's license and reunite with his children. In Marion County, the county's veterans court has seen 116 men and women graduate so far. Rush highlighted one graduate of the veterans court who now serves as a mentor to those in the program and runs a sobriety support group as well as serving on the board of directors of a national association and reconnecting with his son. You can read my full coverage of the address on our website or in our January 17th issue. Rush also mentioned something special the justices are doing for lawmakers. So what was that? It's called Night Court for Legislators, and it will feature an oral argument and a chance for legislators to come see the high court in action. The justices will hear oral arguments in their courtroom like normal on February 19th, but the case will be heard at 5.15 p.m. During her State of the Judiciary address, Rush told lawmakers, quote, attending this oral argument will give each of you a front row seat to how our court considers cases interpreting the laws enacted in these chambers. The case being heard for oral argument involves a parole-related search of an apartment where the state had seized more than $11,000. A relative of the person who lived in the apartment claims the money was hers and that she had given it to her nephew to hold. The Court of Appeals of Indiana affirmed the Marion Superior Court's decision that the money was subject to forfeiture. The High Court will be looking at whether the state can seize cash found during the search of a home of a person on parole without first proving it was connected to a crime. I'll be there to cover the arguments and provide coverage of the night court program. Thanks, Alexa. We'll come back to you in a bit. But Daniel, why don't you tell us about what's going on with the federal courts? A judge who broke ground as the first woman to serve on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals has announced she will be taking senior status. 
creating a new vacancy for the federal appellate court. Judge Ilana Rovner informed President Joe Biden in a January 12th letter of her intent, according to Reuters. According to the Seventh Circuit, Rovner was nominated by former President George H.W. Bush on July 2, 1992, to a seat vacated by Harlington Wood, Jr. She was confirmed by the U.S. Senate and received her commission in August 1992. She had also served as a judge on the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois from 1984 to 1992. Less than a week after Rovner's announcement, Indiana's judicial nominees to the Seventh Circuit and the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Indiana received favorable votes from the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee. Indiana Northern District Court Magistrate Judge Joshua P. Kolar, St. Joseph Superior Judge Crystal C. Briscoe, and Elkhart Superior Judge Gretchen S. Lund are now in line for votes from the full Senate after their nominations advance through the committee. Without discussion, Kolar advanced with a 16-5 vote, Briscoe with a 14-7 vote, and Lund with a 21 vote at the committee's executive business meeting on January 18th. All three nominees and a slew of others were formally renominated by the Biden administration after Senate Republicans returned their names to the White House on December 20th. Speaking of the Indiana Northern District Court, Judge Philip Simon handed down a major ruling this month upholding the process for selecting Superior Court judges in Lake County. Those judges are appointed through a merit selection process that involves a judicial nominating commission and the governor, rather than through judicial elections. The merit selection process is only used in Lake, St. Joseph, and Marion counties, which are also the counties with the state's highest minority populations, according to census data. Allen County also uses merit selection, but only when there's a vacancy to fill. Otherwise, all other Indiana counties elect their superior court judges. Plaintiffs including the city of Hammond, its Democratic Mayor Tom McDermott, a local voter, and Indiana State Senator Lonnie Randolph, also a Democrat, sued the state, alleging the merit selection process violates the Voting Rights Act because voters in high minority populations don't have the same right to elect their judges that voters in lower minority populations do. Simon ultimately rejected that argument by citing to a Seventh Circuit case out of Chicago, Quinn v. Illinois but Simon made clear that he was not happy with his decision. He wrote, quote, Whether appointing superior court judges is a better system than electing them is neither here nor there for present purposes. The question instead is whether, under the VRA, the General Assembly can withhold the right to vote for a state judicial office in counties with a high percentage of black voters while conferring the right in counties with overwhelmingly white voters, end quote. If he had his way, Simon said he would rely on a 2021 case from the U.S. Supreme Court to answer that question with a no. However, he said the Quinn ruling from the Seventh Circuit is the controlling case here. Quote, because Quinn stands in the way, summary judgment will be granted in favor of the defendants, end quote. But the courts aren't the only place the defendants are trying to change Lake County to judicial elections. Senator Randolph this year filed Senate Bill 25, which would require Lake Superior Court judges to be elected. That bill has been assigned to the Senate Elections Committee, but a hearing hasn't been set. One other note from the State House: a bill that would allow statewide elected officials to carry a handgun on the Capitol complex is moving forward. The bill, Senate Bill 14, would allow the Indiana Attorney General, Secretary of State, State Comptroller, and Treasurer of State to carry a handgun at the State House 
or the adjacent Indiana government centers as long as they have a handgun license. The bill was also amended to extend that right to the staffs of those four statewide office holders. Indiana lawmakers and their staffs already have the right to carry on the Capitol complex, and State Treasurer Dan Elliott told members of the Senate Corrections and Criminal Law Committee that he and the other statewide elected office holders want the same right. The bill's author, Republican Senator Jim Tomes, told committee members that the legislation is needed because Indianapolis is a dangerous city, so elected officials need to be able to protect themselves. That drew a fiery response from Senate Minority Leader Greg Taylor, who said it burns him to his core to hear people use Indianapolis as an example of city violence and the need for guns. A bigger problem for lawmakers of both parties was exactly how many people would be covered under the bill, given that both elected officials and their staffs would be given the right to carry. That number wasn't known at the time of the committee meeting, which ultimately led Democratic Senator Rodney Pohl to vote against the measure. Taylor also voted no. But Senate Bill 14 passed the committee and is now headed to the full Senate. A second reading hearing on the bill hadn't been set at the time we recorded this. Okay, one more piece of court news. Daniel, why don't you tell us about the ruling from the Southern District of Indiana regarding driver's licenses? On January 11th, the Indiana Southern District Court granted a preliminary injunction that allows residents who live in the state under federal humanitarian protections, access to Indiana driver's licenses or identification cards. The American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana filed the lawsuit along with the National Immigration Law Center in August of last year on the behalf of five Indiana residents from Haiti who work under the federal protections and wanted to get an Indiana driver's license or identification card. The complaint challenged House Enrolled Act 1050 which created a pathway for individuals on humanitarian parole to obtain Indiana driver's licenses or identification cards, but only if they were from Ukraine. The plaintiffs alleged the 2023 law was unconstitutional violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, preempted by federal law and a violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. When looking at the balance of harms, the district court found that not issuing an injunction risked the imposition of significant harm on humanitarian parolees by depriving them of the privileges associated with having a driver's license, identification cards, and vehicle titles. Quote, in sum, the court determines that the balance of equities weighs heavily in favor of granting an injunction for the Haitian humanitarian parolees. An injunction prohibiting the implementation of the offending language will impose minimal, if any, additional harm or burdens on the commissioner concerning their credentialing efforts, end quote. Chief Judge Tanya Walton Pratt wrote for the district court. Thanks, Daniel. And now, Alexa, as promised, we'll come back to you to tell us about a story you're working on for our next print issue. I am taking a look at the competency exam used on defendants as well as House Bill 1238. The proposed legislation would allow a court to dismiss criminal charges without prejudice if the defendant has a certain diagnosis and is charged with a misdemeanor or a level 6 felony. You can find that story in our January 31st print issue. Thanks, Alexa. Okay, that'll do it for this week's headlines. As always, if you want more legal news, check us out at theindianalawyer.com. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear this week's special extended interview between Nate Beltman and Marcus Cole.
Taft. Today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. Welcome back to the January 24th, 2024 episode of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast. Like I said up top, this week's extended interview is actually an episode of another IBJ Media podcast, Off the Record with the Indiana 250. We hope you enjoyed this conversation between IBJ Media publisher Nate Feltman and Notre Dame Law Dean G. Marcus Cole. One note, this conversation runs longer than our usual extended interviews, so you'll need some extra time to listen. Enjoy it, and we'll talk to you again on February 7th. I've always believed that the ability to practice law isn't just power, it's a superpower, because you can change the lives of people in the same way that a superhero can in fiction. You can do it in real life. Welcome to Off the Record, a podcast featuring leaders on IBJ Media's Indiana 250 list. I'm Nate Feltman, CEO of IBJ Media, which publishes the Indiana 250, a list of the most influential business people in the state. Today, I'm joined by Indiana 250 member Marcus Cole, the Dean of Notre Dame Law School. Marcus became Dean in 2019 after spending 22 years as a faculty member at Stanford Law School. At Stanford, Marcus taught courses in the areas of bankruptcy, banking, contracts, and venture capital, and served as associate dean for curriculum and academic affairs. Before joining the faculty at Stanford, he was an associate with the Chicago law firm, Mayor Brown. He also clerked for Judge Morris Shepard Arnold of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. Marcus earned his bachelor's degree in applied economics from Cornell University and his law degree from Northwestern University. Marcus's extensive legal and scholarly background includes serving as a national fellow at the Hoover Institution, as a fellow at the University of Amsterdam Center for Law and Economics, and as a visiting professor at several institutions around the world, from Austria to Korea to China. Marcus has served on the editorial board of the Cato Supreme Court Review as a member of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit's Bankruptcy Judicial Advisory Committee, and as a member of the advisory board of the Independent Institute Center on Culture and Civil Society. He is a former board president of Rocket Ship Education, a national nonprofit charter school network that operates California's most successful charter school network for low-income children. And he recently joined the board of the Liberty Fund, which is based right here in Carmel, where we have the opportunity to work together on that board. During Marcus's tenure as dean, he's established the Religious Liberty Initiative and expanded the law school's international programs through his Global Lawyering Initiative. We'll touch base on both of these programs that he has led. Marcus, welcome to Off the Record Podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. I'd like to start, Marcus, a little bit talking about your early years. You're the son of immigrants with your mother, a native of the Netherlands, and your father, a native of Sierra Leone, and you grew up in Pittsburgh. Can you talk about growing up in Pittsburgh and the influence your parents had on you and maybe your decision to pursue a law career? Pittsburgh was a really interesting place to grow up. I grew up in a relatively poor family in the Terrace Village housing projects of uh, Pittsburgh's Hill District. Uh, if you're familiar with the playwright August Wilson, 
August Wilson grew up in the same neighborhood and all of his plays take place in my neighborhood, the, the Hill District. And uh, it was an interesting place to grow up. It, was, it uh, really influenced a lot of uh, my current thinking about poverty and law. But I grew up in a really strong family. It was a Catholic family. We were very Catholic. And my mom told us that we had two jobs. Uh, one was to sell newspapers to help make ends meet. And the other was to serve as altar boys at uh, our church, uh, St. Agnes Church, which was down the hill from where we lived. And so me and my older brother, um, I'm the second of five children. So me and my older brother, Mike, did that uh, every day. We sold newspapers every day. And we served as altar boys on Sundays at St. Agnes Church, where we had tremendous mentorship from the priests uh, who who served our parish. And, uh, and that really shaped a lot of who I am and why I'm where I am today. I also wanted to become a lawyer growing up in the projects because my mom had to get on a bus to go grocery shopping. And I just thought that that was such a burden for her. She had to, she had to get on a bus and leave our neighborhood to go just get the essentials of life for us. And I thought that what we needed were more businesses in our neighborhood. And I thought that what they needed was somebody who could represent their interests. And so from a very young age, I, I wanted to be a business lawyer to serve that cause and that purpose. Well, you and I share something else in common besides serving together on the Liberty Fund Board. My first job was also delivering newspapers, the South Bend Tribune, where you reside today, I know. But uh, that job definitely teaches you accountability, responsibility. That paper has to get out first thing in the morning or someone's going to get mad, right? And you can't take sick days. <laughs> That's right. Well, you mentioned your initial drive to become a lawyer was based on trying to help solve potentially some of these food security issues that we're still working on in lots of places around the around the country today. And you had an initial thought of being a business lawyer, it sounds like. At some point, did that change? I know you, your first job out of law school was working in Chicago, a large Chicago international law firm. Did that experience eventually change your thinking about what kind of law you might focus on or or your career path? It actually changed in law school. I got a really good education uh, in high school. I went to Central Catholic High School in Pittsburgh. And to this day, I think that the best foundation for the rest of my education was laid at Central Catholic. I was a classmate of Dan Marino. Actually, his dad was my baseball coach. But I got a great education there. I went on to Cornell. And I went to law school at Northwestern thinking that I'm going to I'm going to get the skills I need to be a, a small business lawyer. And in fact, I remember my law school essay was about how important it is for someone to, to come out and become a small business lawyer because we have got a lot of lawyers who go to big law firms, but small businesses need lawyers too. But in my first year of law school, I'll never forget, I was, I was, uh, I was uh, deep into the first semester of law school and I was sitting in the front row of my contracts class. And, and by the way, in law school, I sat in the front row of every single class. And I tell my students today, I wanted to learn the law so badly that if I could have sat in the professor's lap, I would have. <laughs> so I, I sat in the front row of every class. And I'll never forget, I sit down in class one day uh, toward the end of the first semester of law school. And the professor, instead of starting class, walks up to me leans over and whispers to me and says, I want to see you in my office after class. 
Uh-oh. And for the rest of that class, I didn't hear a word he said because I'm, <laughs> I'm shaking in my boots thinking, well, what did I do? So I go to his office after class and I walked in and I said, Professor, I don't know what I did, but whatever it is, I can fix it. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. I just want to talk to you about what your plans are for after law school. And I said, well, this is just the first semester of, of law school. He said, I know, but you actually have the potential to become a law professor. And I've uh, noticed it in class and I've actually talked to some of your other professors. And it's something I think you ought to think about. And I didn't give it a lot of thought. In fact, I did the wrong thing at that moment. When he said, I think you ought to be, think about becoming a law professor, I actually laughed. <laughs> And you don't laugh when somebody who's actually a law professor says that you should be a, a law professor. And then I, I tried to fix it real quick by saying, oh, I just didn't think I was qualified. But he kept up with me and uh, he followed my progression through law school. And then I started getting the same kind of attention from my other professors in law school. And then one day another professor called me up and said, you're going to be a law professor, but you need a clerkship to become a law professor. So we're going to arrange a clerkship for you. And so I got interviewed by, I got a call from a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals on the Eighth Circuit, Buzz Arnold. And the call was just to arrange my trip down to Little Rock, Arkansas, where his chambers were, in order to interview with him in person. But that 15-minute call turned into a two-hour call. And he said, I don't need to see you. I'll hire you right now. So I said, well, I'd still like to come down and visit. So I did that and, and I realized that I'm, I'm going to do this clerkship thing whether I want to or not because I didn't know anything about clerking and I didn't know uh, what it involved. But if all these people who cared about me thought it was important for me, I thought I at least owed it to them to investigate what it was all about. So I did that and it was a life-altering experience for me and my wife, Angie, and that's when I really started to think seriously about becoming a law professor. I didn't jump into it right away. I went back to Chicago, where my wife is from, and I got a job with uh, Mayor Brown, which was one of the three largest law firms in Chicago. But I got great training at Mayor Brown, and I, and I took the job at Mayor Brown because I thought to become a better lawyer, I needed the best training I could get, and I think I got it there. What you just shared with me didn't happen to me in law school. So I'm not sure what that says about, about what the professor <laughs> saw in, in a young uh, Nate Feltman. <laughs> yeah, well, I think Nate Feltman's doing That's all right. That's a really cool story, though. <laughs> oh, thanks. That's a really cool, cool story. Moving on. So after you practiced law for, for five years or so in Chicago at Mayor Brown, you went out to Stanford and took a, a professorship out at Stanford, and you were teaching and researching there, and then eventually serving in different faculty positions. Then I've read that when you had the opportunity to eventually become dean at Notre Dame's law school, that was really probably one of the only positions that you would have actually thought about to leave uh, Stanford. Why was Notre Dame's opportunity to leave Notre Dame's law school so attractive of an opportunity? Well, that goes back to my childhood. So you remember the story I told you about how um, my mom said we had two jobs. One was to sell newspapers and the other was to serve as altar boys. And my brother and I, you know, I was, what, six or seven at the time. My older brother was a few years older than me. We did that every day, seven days a week. We sold the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and we sold the Post-Gazette because it was a seven-day-a-week newspaper. And there was another newspaper, the Pittsburgh Press, that was six days a week, but we couldn't make as much money selling that. So we sold the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette seven days a week, and then on Sundays we would serve as altar boys 
at Mass at St. Agnes Church. But on fall Sunday mornings, my brother and I would get up really early and before the sun was out, we would get those newspapers, we would sell those newspapers, and then we would rush to St. Agnes Church to make sure that we were the first two altar boys at that first Mass. Because if we got that first Mass, then we could run home right after Mass and watch the rebroadcast of the Notre Dame football games that were played the day before. And we lived for those football games when we were kids. We saw Notre Dame as our team. Neither of us had ever been to Indiana, but we were Catholic boys, and Notre Dame represented us. And we thought that everything that Notre Dame stood for was special and excellent and good. And so we made a pact when we were little boys that when we grew older, there was only one college for us. It was Notre Dame. We were going to both go there. We were going to be there together, and we were both going to be domers. Well, my older brother was the worst older brother that you could ask for because he was perfect at everything. He was <laughs> number one in his class. He was student body president, so he's smart and popular. He was a superstar athlete at every sport, captain of our soccer team, everything. So he applied to one college, Notre Dame, he got in. And then years later, when it was my turn to apply and keep my end of the pact, I applied to Notre Dame, and I didn't get in. And I was devastated. So I had to go to my fallback school, Cornell University. And I'm glad I went to Cornell because that's where I met my wife, Angie, and we've been married 35 years. But I always wanted to be at Notre Dame, and I never stopped having that desire. So even when I was practicing law in Chicago, I would drag my wife, Angie, to South Bend for football games. And even when we lived in California, people in California thought I was a Notre Dame graduate because I rooted for Notre Dame. But I loved everything about Notre Dame, not just the football team, but what Notre Dame and its Catholic mission stood for. So it's something I've always believed in. And everyone who knew me at Stanford knew that there was only one place that could come calling that would draw me away from Stanford. I loved Stanford. I loved being in California. I loved Silicon Valley. But Notre Dame was truly the only place I would leave California and leave Stanford for. Neat story that uh, came full circle, finally. Since you've become dean at Notre Dame Law School, you've started a number of really interesting uh, initiatives, and one of them is the establishment of the Religious Liberty Initiative and the Religious Liberty Clinic. Can you talk a little bit about those initiatives? So the Religious Liberty Initiative was the first thing I wanted to do when I got to Notre Dame. The very first Religious Liberty Clinic in the nation was formed at Stanford University while I was associate dean there. Uh, it was really spearheaded by Professor Michael McConnell who's an expert in law and religion. And what he wanted to do was expose students to the richness of debates about religious liberty. But in the California setting and in the Stanford setting, there was a very limited opportunity to be able to do that. But it became a very popular clinic. What always shocked me about Notre Dame, even before I got to Notre Dame, was that Notre Dame wasn't in the discussion about religious liberty. And, and those discussions have taken on national proportions. And so when I um, had my interview with the president of the University of Notre Dame, Father John Jenkins, I said that if you appoint me as dean of your law school, the first thing I'm going to do is create a religious liberty clinic. Because when it comes to issues of religious liberty, Notre Dame can't simply just be at the table. Notre Dame needs to be taking leadership of those conversations. Notre Dame has to guide this country through the very difficult and complex 
issues that surround religious liberty. And so it's important for us to be involved in that. And if you don't want that, then you don't want me as dean. So I, I took that as an endorsement. Thinking about what this country is witnessing now, really I'm referring to what's happened in Israel, the October 7th terrorist attack in Israel. And now we're seeing in this country some of the impact of that terrorist attack, which is the rising tide of anti-Semitism that has hit everywhere, but certainly hit college campuses. Does this initiative that you've started at Notre Dame, does that help address in some way the, the challenges that we're seeing across this country? Absolutely. So one of the things that we did right after the October 7th terrorist attack in Israel was that we organized a seminar on anti-Semitism and the rise of anti-Semitism in the United States and on college campuses. And so we got experts on anti-Semitism to come to Notre Dame's Religious Liberty Initiative to talk about the rise of anti-Semitism. And when we announced this in broadcast that we were going to do this, I got a lot of hate mail from all over the country and from across the United States over the fact that we were going to have a conversation about anti-Semitism. We were, I think we're still the only school that I know of that's had a very public discussion about anti-Semitism. And this hate mail was largely from people who saw us as choosing sides in the in the war in the Middle East. And, and so I introduced the session by saying, look, first of all, to associate a discussion about anti-Semitism with the Israeli government and with Israeli politics is another form of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, hatred of Jews can't be turned into a discussion of the politics of the state of Israel. Those are two separate things. And we can have a discussion about the rise of anti-Semitism without having to draw in a discussion about the policies of, of the Israeli government. To do so is a heinous form of anti-Semitism itself. Uh, and second, it's not a debate. There are not two sides to anti-Semitism in the same way there aren't two sides to racism. Yeah, there was no discussion about whether it was proper to murder George Floyd or whether it's proper to murder black people in the wake of the George Floyd murder. In the same token, it's not proper discussion to talk about killing Jews by virtue of the fact that they're Jews. And so finally, I, I, I said that um, just because we're having a conversation about anti-Semitism doesn't mean we don't care about other forms of hatred and other forms of prejudice. To suggest that every time we talk about anti-Semitism that we also have to talk about other forms of hatred is itself a form of anti-Semitism. And we got no hate mail after that. I think people understood that we can have a conversation about the rise of hate without having to have a conversation about political issues. Well, this delves into another topic I wanted to touch base with you on, which is free speech on college campuses. And I know you've been very purposeful about inviting well-known leaders, politicians, Supreme Court justices of all persuasions and political views to speak at Notre Dame and to hold conversations on campus. Can you talk about some of the leaders that you have had on campus and your purpose for inviting them? I'm very privileged and honored to say that I've now had over half of the Supreme Court visit us uh, at Notre Dame. And I think it's really important, especially for law students, to hear from and be up close and be able to ask questions of our nation's leaders, especially our elected officials and judges and lawyers. Very early on in my tenure as dean in the fall of 2019, 
We had a panel discussion with uh, three senators, Senators Chris Coons of Delaware, uh, Senator Joe Donnelly of Indiana, and former Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona. And the conversation was about bipartisanship in the age of Donald Trump. And I got a bunch of hate mail about uh, how can you have enemies of our president on your campus and why are you giving him voice? And then two weeks later, we had the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, come to speak at Notre Dame. And I got even more hate mail. So I issued a statement uh, saying that free speech is critical, especially at a university and especially at a Catholic university. And that as long as what they say is within the bounds of the law, they are going to be free to speak. We do not cancel speakers at Notre Dame. And if you have an opposing view, if you're a student group that has an opposing view, you are free to both come and ask questions of the speaker. And you can also invite other speakers to your own event to have opposing views. And that's the policy that we have at Notre Dame. We do not have cancel culture at Notre Dame. And I think that that not only translates to the speakers that we bring in, but also in the classroom. I tell students on day one that as a Catholic school, they are to recognize the human dignity of the person sitting next to them, because that's what God calls us to do. We are all created in the likeness and image of God. Even if you disagree with that person, you have to recognize that that person is created in the likeness and image of God, and you're going to treat them that way. And furthermore, this is the start of your professional reputation. You're no longer an undergraduate, and you're not even in graduate school. You're in professional school. And so everything you do at this point and the way you treat people is going to be remembered, and it's going to be a reflection upon you as a professional. And so you should treat people with dignity. I love this quote that I, I saw of yours, and it's referencing a, a kind of the topic we're on. And you wrote that you will tell students from time to time, quote, you have every right to be offended by what someone says, but you do not have a right to not be offended. And that, to me, sounded like the definition of free speech and being tolerant of others. And we don't see that. We don't see that at every campus today, that viewpoint, of course. I think you've already described a little bit how Notre Dame is different in that regard, but maybe talk a little bit about that philosophy and, and how you're implementing it at the law school at Notre Dame. Yeah, the only way you can be offended by something someone says is if they've had the opportunity to say it. You don't have a right to prevent them from saying it. You don't have a right to prevent others from hearing them say it. And so at Notre Dame, and I tell everyone I can, I can only control what's in, in front of me. At Notre Dame, at least, we do not prevent speakers from speaking. We don't cancel them. We treat positions, even positions that we may disagree with, as legitimate positions that are worthy of respect and worthy of respectful debate. And that's the only way that they're going to be treated on a true university campus. And the way you address Offensive speech or wrong speech is with speech. You can't stick your head in a hole and think that, that ideas that make you uncomfortable are going to simply go away, and especially if you're training to be a lawyer. Because I tell my students that this education isn't for you. This education is for the people that you're going to go out to serve. And in order to serve them well, you have to confront what they have to confront. They don't have the chance to raise their hand and say, oh, that experience offended me or those words offended me. You cannot make the first time that you hear an offensive word 
or offensive ideas when you go to represent someone who has been hit with those offensive words and offensive ideas. You need to confront them now so that you are prepared to serve them when you go out into the world. This reminds me of another quote that I saw that, that, that along those lines that you said that a law student who is afraid of ideas or words is like a medical student who's afraid of the sight of blood. I thought, that, I thought that was a great quote, and that's kind of what you're saying now. Yeah, that's exactly right. Law students have to be prepared to deal with ideas, even uncomfortable ones, even offensive ones. To be good representatives when they're practicing law or whatever they're doing within the legal profession. Well, I know you're a big believer in the power of the legal profession. You already have articulated power to make the world a better place. And I read that you've told Notre Dame grads that they have a chance to be a different kind of lawyer. How does that tie into your hope that lawyers can make a a big impact and a positive impact in the world, especially Notre Dame graduates? So I've always believed, even when I was a small boy dreaming of being a lawyer, I've always believed that the ability to practice law isn't just power, it's a superpower because you can change the lives of people in the same way that a superhero can in fiction. You can do it in real life. And so I've always believed that lawyers are special, but I believe that Notre Dame lawyers are even better equipped to change the lives of people for the better because we treat the whole person both in the classroom and in casual conversation and in our entire environment, including the spiritual person. We tell our students that you are not simply a brain that leaves your faith or your lack of faith aside when you enter the classroom, that human beings are people who have a conscience and they have beliefs. And sometimes those beliefs are faith in God. And you don't have to have a faith in God when you come to Notre Dame. But if you do have faith in God, then we're going to show how your faith relates to your education, to the practical practice of law, and to the very people that you're going to be serving. And you can tie directly your service to the world to your belief that you are called to serve the world. In other words, We view the practice of law not just as a job or profession, but as a vocation that someone can be called to serve others, and this is the way they serve others. Let's take a quick break. This is Off the Record Podcast. Get caught up on the state's top business news every business day with the Inside Indiana Business Radio On Demand podcast. Available now at InsideIndianaBusiness.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Off the Record Podcast. I'm Nate Feltman, CEO of IBJ Media. I'm talking with Marcus Cole, Dean of Notre Dame Law School. Moving on to another, I know, big initiative, important initiative for you as Dean at Notre Dame Law School is the expansion of your international programming, both for faculty and for law students. And I believe you've established a fairly new program in in Israel. Can you talk about the importance of, in general, the international initiatives that you furthered at the law school and why maybe the focus on Israel as well? I gained experience through my work as a scholar and my research that uh, the practice of law today is no longer simply jurisdictional, that you can be a small-town business lawyer in a small town in Indiana or representing clients, and you're going to have international issues arise. You're going to have trade issues. You're going to have tax issues arise for a lot of your clients. And you need to be familiar with the ways in which lawyers navigate those kinds of issues. And so 
what I decided when I got to Notre Dame, because Notre Dame is, has such a large global footprint already, that uh, one way we can leverage that global footprint is to expose our students and our faculty to the various ways in which they can serve their clients and the world through both their lawyering skills, but also through scholarship at our various locations around the world where they'll be exposed to these global issues. So for example, I've expanded our London Law Campus which is now uh, the largest extraterritorial law program of any American law school. 10% of our law students at Notre Dame study in our London campus. I've created a program in Dublin, Ireland called the Dublin Honor Scholars Program where I approached the five largest law firms in Dublin, Ireland, which by the way, if people don't know, it's a tech hub. It's, it's become like the Silicon Valley of the European Union. And so I approached the five largest law firms there to take our students into their summer training program so that our students would be exposed to both European Union law, but also it's the last English-speaking common law country in the European Union. And so I wanted them to be able to uh, navigate those trade issues. I created a similar program at Hamburg, Germany. Now, recently, I've ex expanded that program uh, to Tel Aviv, Israel. Uh, Tel Aviv, again, is one of the world's Silicon Valleys a big tech center uh, around the world, and we have a partnership with Tel Aviv University's Faculty of Law, where we exchange students, exchange faculty, and also have placements for uh, Notre Dame law students with Israeli tech firms. I didn't uh, at first realize the connection. That all makes sense, Tel Aviv being a hub of technology development in, in, in uh, the Middle East, and of course, uh, as you mentioned, Ireland being a center for, for Europe. Are you teaching venture capital courses? What does what some of the, the coursework look like in those both of those places? So we have a, a course on venture capital and capital markets being taught both uh, full-time in London, but also over a spring break, what we have, what we call a mini course that we conduct in various places. We also have a, a course on natural resources law in the north of England, uh, in the Lake District, studying the UK's electrical uh, deregulation program. Uh, in Ireland, intellectual property law is very big, as, as well as data privacy. We have a student placed with the data privacy minister of Ireland. In Israel, it's mostly focused on technology law, but we're also exploring the expansion of our law and religion program there as well. Well, going globally back to in, coming back to Indiana a little bit, you've, you've now lived in Indiana for about four years or so after spending 22 in California. And so you have a little bit of a feel how Indiana compares to, to California. And I, of course, you've traveled all over the country and all over the world. But we're always trying to learn something about experiences of, of our Indiana 250 guests. And in, in that vein, what is one big idea to make Indiana a better place maybe to live or start a business or, or to grow an existing business? Any, any thoughts or tidbits you could share from your experiences? I think that the rest of the world has a lot to learn from Indiana. Uh, we absolutely love Indiana, and we wouldn't move back to California for anything at this point. We love California, but if you open up the newspaper any day, you know that California has a lot of problems that Indiana doesn't have. And I think Indiana's on the right track. It has an attractive tax system. It has, it's a beautiful landscape. I mean, I live in northern Indiana. We've driven around the whole state of Indiana, but we just love the natural beauty of this state. Housing is affordable here. 
And that's decreasingly true for much of the country. But to, to be in a beautiful place like Indiana with affordable housing, it's a pretty special place. And I'm not sure that it has much to learn from the rest of the world. A lot of people in central Indiana or southern part of the state don't realize that we have beaches in Indiana. They're up on Lake Michigan. Uh, so uh, it is special. That's where, And it's where I grew up. I grew up in the South Bend, Mishawaka area, so I can relate. Well, Marcus, we've made it to off-the-record speed round, and that's where you give me, as best you can, quick answers to a series of questions. Okay, favorite movie? I have to say there are four favorite movies, and I wish I could narrow it down to one, but Casablanca, my wife and I watch it every year on New Year's Eve. That's how we spend our New Year's Eve for the last 35 years. A Man for All Seasons, the story of St. Thomas More, uh, special to me. Lawrence of Arabia, I think, is just a masterpiece film. And then probably, if I had to narrow it down to one, Elf. Elf nice. is just, <laughs> that is a work of genius. Uh, my kids will tell you I know every single line from all four of those movies, and I, and I quote them interchangeably. <laughs> That's awesome. Favorite place to vacation? It has to be Amsterdam. We lived in Amsterdam. Uh, we go there every year for our anniversary, and um, I've find it such a peaceful, relaxing uh, place to go. Favorite musical artist? So this is a hard one, too. I can't narrow it down uh, to one. I think that Ahmad Jamal, uh, who I finally got to see in person when he was 93 years old uh, in San Francisco last year or the year before, who just recently passed away, Ahmad Jamal, I think, is the greatest jazz pianist of all time. I uh, just mesmerized by his music. But I also think that Sir George Solti, as the music director of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra back when I lived in Chicago, and their recording of Handel's Messiah is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. And then it, a third favorite musical artist uh, would be Sir Neville Mariner and the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. So uh, you can tell I'm a jazz and classical music fan. What is the first thing you do in the morning? That's easy. Uh, very first thing I do, even before I get out of bed, is I read the gospel. So the Catholic Church breaks every day of the year into separate gospel readings for that day. And so before I even get out of bed, I read the gospel reading for that day. And then I also have, uh, there's a Jesuit prayer website that I go to where they'll have a different prayer every day. And so that's, I'll say that prayer. And then the very second thing I do and my wife, my wife will tell you, it's just religious for me, is I make the bed. Title of the last book you read? Finding Messiah. And it's a really interesting book by a woman who was originally studying uh, to get a PhD in theology at Yale. And then uh, she actually, was, she was going to go to law school. And at the last minute, changed her mind. Instead of going to law school, she went and got degree in theology, a PhD. She, she grew up Jewish, converted to Christianity, and now lives fully Jewish and fully as a Christian. She is what we refer to these days as a Messianic Jew. And it's really fascinating the way she weaves her daily Jewish experience with her daily experience as a Christian. And her research was all about the early Christian church and how it was fully Jewish and fully Christian in the same way that she is. And it's basically an argument for how Christians should embrace Judaism. And so uh, it's fascinating. I recommend it to everyone. What food can you not live without? 
I don't think that there is a food that I can uh, that I can't live without. I like everything. I like trying everything. I love wild game, though. I'm uh, I'm a big fan of anything wild. Michael Jordan or LeBron James? This is really easy. So I'm a dyed-in-the-wool uh, Chicago Bulls fan. I got to see Michael Jordan all throughout the glory years, up close and personal. And I just think that there's no comparison. You might make comparisons with others like Djokovic or, or Giannis, but LeBron James, as great as he is, and I acknowledge that he's great, uh, he's no Michael Jordan. Best advice you ever received? The best advice I ever received was from my judge, Morris Shepard Arnold, Buzz Arnold, uh, said to me uh, one day, we had an ice storm in Little Rock, Arkansas, and no one else made it into chambers except for me and him. And so he said, congratulations. I said, why? He said, you've won. And I said, I've won what? He said, Marcus, the key to success in life is just showing up because so many people don't even do that. And I've never forgotten that. And so uh, there's another expression that he used that my kids have internalized. And that is that if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, don't bother. I use that one too. I love that one. Advice for a young person who wants to become a leader. I think the most important advice, and I think they see this on display every day. You saw it, what happened with the presidents of the universities uh, that got in trouble in front of Congress. The most important rule that you have to follow as a leader, and it's so hard to not do this, but the most important rule is to not care what's popular not care about what other people, don't try to please other people. You have to do what's right, regardless of whether it's popular. And you won't get in trouble or lose your integrity if you simply do what's right. You can only lose those things if you try to please other people. Last question. When is Notre Dame football going to win another national championship? I think it's going to be very soon. I'm looking for next year, actually. I think the college football playoffs expansion to 12 teams, you have to include Notre Dame in that mix because we're, we're going to be perennially in the conversation. And without a conference championship to win, we can at least get a spot in the playoff. And I have a lot of confidence in the other Marcus on campus. Uh, Marcus Freeman, the head coach of Notre Dame football, and I believe that he's going to have his name on one of those gates on the stadium soon. Marcus, thank you so much for joining me on the Indiana 250 Off the Record podcast. We're thrilled to have you living in Indiana and making incredible contributions in our state and around the world. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for having me. It's a tremendous honor. Thanks to Notre Dame Law School Dean Marcus Cole for our conversation today. To learn more about other leaders on IBJ Media's Indiana 250 list, go to indiana250.com and look for a page two feature each week in IBJ. We'll be back with a new Indiana 250 off-the-record conversation soon.